Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Chloe Alexandra Thompson, a Cree Canadian interdisciplinary artist and sound designer, presently based in New York. Chloe's new album, They Can Never Burn the Stars, is out now on Siege, and it's wonderful. So Chloe specialises often in using multi-channel sound and high-density loudspeaker arrays, which is particularly apparent in the last piece on this record, which uses a 14 subwoofer array. The whole thing was put together at Pioneer Works in New York. But that final track for subwoofers is an absolute beaut. You can hear objects shaking with the sheer force of vibration. And as I remark on in this podcast, it captures that midpoint between being a recorded experience that's translated from a physical three-dimensional one that also retains all that sense of being in that space and watching these low frequencies. I say watching, hearing, but it feels like watching. These frequencies pool across the floor and walls like syrup. It's so good. And Chloe is clearly so, so great at enlivening different relationships between sounds of different pitches, sound and its environment, and sound as something that connects with you as a listener as well. This very fundamental act of connection seems to be super prominent in Chloe's work. I, I love the record. I was really excited to speak to Chloe. She picked three excellent records and we had a good chat. So you can check out Chloe's new record over at siegerecords.bandcamp.com. Uh, you can head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening where I will collate all of the links. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do consider throwing a few coins over, either as a one-off or as a monthly donation, to help support the podcast and the costs incurred in running it, as well as the energy expended. I'm really grateful to everyone who's donated there. And feel free to give it a review and a rating as well, if that's your kind of thing. Thank you very much for listening. Please do enjoy this one. This is Chloe Alexandra Thompson on Crucial Listening. Hello, Chloe. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So you're here to talk about your three important records. Before we mm -hmm. get stuck into those, uh, I wanted to first talk about your new album, They Can Never Burn the Stars, which is out now on Siege. So I want to start by talking about this 6.2 speaker array system at Pioneer Works. Um, 
and obviously sound in space is a huge proponent of what you're doing so can you tell me about the space at pioneer works to begin with and what it was like to be using this speaker array in that space yeah totally and thank you so much um yeah so i i did a residency december 2020 at pioneer works and it's this quite large art space that's based in Red Hook, um, sort of the lower end of Brooklyn in New York. Um, and typically as a music resident, you have access to their recording studio that's actually built out in like an old shipping container. Um, it's really nice. Hmm. And you usually get to play a show or something of that nature. Um, there's some programming, but given the pandemic, there was not that option. Thankfully, there was this option to do an installation in the space um, for some recording. And like typically my practice is a lot more focused on like live performance and installation in general. Um, while I like work in studio recording environments, I generally don't record like through DIs and do that um, so much mm. because the sounds that I'm making, like I, I, I do a lot of audio programming, so I'm generating on a computer, but I don't actually love the sound of the computer. I'm more drawn to like how that interacts with speakers and how that interacts in a space, um, which can make recording a little bit cumbersome. So they were like, hey, you can totally do an installation here. We're not doing Christmas rentals or having events because of the pandemic. So why don't we do that? Um, so I worked with um, the technicians there in the space um, to create like a six channel array with two subwoofers that we set up in this sort of gigantic hall. Um, and the walls on like one side are all like old brick. And then there's wood in this giant vaulted ceiling. It's like a three story open space. And then on one side, there's all these balconies where the offices are kind of attached to overlooking the large performance or gallery space. Um, it's concrete floor, so pretty reflective. And so we set that array up, the 6.2 array. And also we talked about my work with um, sub subwoofer only composition and they had 14 subwoofers um, from <laughs> Infrasound. And we were like, how can we take advantage of this massive, like the last time before this that I'd gone to something like a, a proper concert at Pioneer Works, um, Terry Riley was playing. And I think there was like 2,500 people in the space. Oh, you know, wow. Sold out. So it's huge, you know, and those seats were really cramped together. and. But it, it's a big hall, you know, and we were like, okay, so we have 14 subwoofers, some of which are infrasonic, and we have this space. What can we do? <laughs> what can we do with this? Like, how could this be like interesting and sort of the same for the 6.2 array? It's like, okay, we have this empty space. This gear hasn't really seen the light of day in a while. Um, they were doing some panel programming because that could be socially distanced, but they weren't really doing concerts, um, indoors at least. And so we kind of just worked together and spent two days like setting up these different installations um, and then recording. Well, I guess it was really nice, you know, because we had to wait <laughs> for people to finish their day jobs and not disrupt the work environment. Um, 
So we set up the 6.2 array and just hit record, you know, and then we were allowed to have a few guests. So people were able to come in and experience the installation. And I was doing live spatialization and playback um, of work, um, specifically the acoustic instruments I recorded in that shipping container studio. So I was able to bring those stems and manipulate them in real time in this like installation format. Um, and a lot of the work was built off of some generative patches that I created in Max MSP. Um, and Tommy Martinez, who at the time was um, the director of the technical residency in that tech program at Pioneer Works, had this really wonderful um, patch that did, it was like a flocking algorithm that you could control and it was a spectral spatialization tool. So essentially he was taking the sound and dividing it up into like um, 256 buckets based on frequency band. And then you have these like 250 little buffers or buckets of sound that you could like fling around the room. Oh, so it was wow. like a granular spectral spatialization tool which i used on the track nocturne voice and a lot of that work is um based around like granular which of course is very simple and happens a lot um but i'm really interested in like de degrading samples and <laughs> taking even like live playback and seeing like kind of how far you can turn something inside out and have it sort of shine on its own, you know, through processes of degradation or pitch shifting and kind of almost damaging or aliasing. Um, and so I used that on Nocturne Voice. I, I tried it out on a few other tracks, but for the final album, we really stuck to that one. Um, yeah, it was really fun. So I like recorded what was going on in the installation and made adjustments and we did the first night, I think the first night was sub bass and we, we recorded for, um, I don't even remember how many hours. It wasn't that long. I think we were in there once it was all set up for like three hours of live sub bass, which um, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. everything you hear in that track touch modality that's above, like that's legible is really object shaking you know like i contact my scissor lift and that's that phaser sound you know wow. the seal steel rattling and vibrating and um put some hydrophones in plastic buckets and there was these like very amazing water ripple kinetic sculptures happening um and my friend drew came and he <laughs> was like texting me at four in the morning that he felt like he was um, having a psychedelic experience. And we all, everyone who was there, we all sat outside after for a minute and we were all very altered in this wow. way. Yeah. Like no one had been drinking or anything because we had to have masks on. But we were all like, wow, we're kind of like high right now <laughs> off the sub base. This is amazing. <laughs> You know, so it was it was really beautiful in this like kinetic way to share that space and be able to capture it um, for that recording purpose, especially when we were all so cooped up. You know, I'm really interested as well as uh, about how you captured 
this recording because I've seen you say before that you weren't really recording artists prior to you know a couple of years back and the pandemic sounded like it was a, a key aspect of changing that for you but how do you go about recording these installations particularly when you're having such pronounced altering experiences on the sound in the space how do you capture that and record it in a way that feels like it's part of your practice or that 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 you can communicate what you want to to communicate with a recording as someone Mm -hmm. who primarily works with space because i should also um qualify that question as well with the fact that i freaking love how this record sounds and it retains so much of the sense that you are inhabiting space as well without feeling like it's um generating too much distance between you and the audio it's it's got this incredible three-dimensionality about it so yeah i'm wondering how you went about that thank you so much and i i've recorded the sound in space like in in the past and usually i'll use um condenser microphones two stereo ones or um, binaural microphones or something of that nature and i'll just make a room recording um my, my computer is usually pretty taxed while I'm performing, so I don't really record in real time from my computer. I might take a board recording and mix that in. Um, but the process here, what I feel like really helped it is there was actually that support in the room. Mm. And so we had um, Federico, um, who was doing the engineering at the time, um doing a board recording like multi-channel so every channel i was outputting from my interface was recorded in di Um, we had plate microphones i was using a hydrophone um, in water to give some bass distortion in front of the subwoofers um, both for touch modality and for the 6.2 speaker array which is a a little trick i learned from ben greenberg who actually mixed Ah, the record totally phenomenal. Um, I actually had heard about his practice doing that um, from uh, a release that he worked on with Pharmacon. um, And I was like, I really need to know this person. That's so great. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, I I was like, wait, you you did that? You put the water on top of the subwoofer and it sounds fantastic? (laughs) Oh, you're just a genius. And now we're studio mates, and that's just kind of the serendipity of the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, I was like, oh, you're that person. And you mix my record now. This is fantastic. Um, so Fed was making sure that nothing was clipping the whole time. We had several plate mics, um, a binaural mic, and it wasn't a Neumann or anything of that level, but I've been having a lot of really good results with the 3DO um, pro binaural microphone it's the one with the xlr um it's a bit expensive in usd it's two thousand dollars um but it has the dpa 4060 capsules which can actually take a lot um really the truth is good capsules you know and if you can kind of borrow that or purchase it 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 really is worth the investment if you're going to be recording in a room Kyle, who was the technical director at Pioneerworks at the time, busted out like 10 other microphones. Uh, it was a little intense. I was like, this might be a little much, but um, it was really beautiful to have all of those options when we got down to mixing. 
Mm. you know, and um, I'm not particularly a fan of a dry DI, but having that available to sort of clarify anything that was muddy, you know, or like get cut the base out of it and retain some of the highs that might have been lost a bit because there was so much base happening, you know, things of that nature. Mm. Uh, it was really helpful to go through that um, process. And Ben Greenberg, we just sat and mixed the whole thing, I think in one day, you know, we oh, just wow. were like, let's go with our gut. Let's just, because it was really more about assembly and levels than it was about adding effects or reverb because all of that was there in the recording, hmm. you know? And I, I think it's very true that if you have a good recording, then you don't actually need to do a ton to it, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it's more about balancing and framing and like compressing certain elements to sort of really show that three-dimensional stereo image um, that should already exist, you know? Um, it can be a little difficult to do recordings um, when you're doing this kind of work. And like I, like I was mentioning with the DIs, um, they're very helpful in some ways, uh, but mm. I'm, if I'm doing a spatial installation, I'm, it's all kind of mixed already to some extent um, coming out of my audio interface. And so if I wanted to multi-track something, it's an entirely different process. Mm. And one that honestly, I, I obviously technically can do and have done and do that with other artists I work with, but I don't really find the same joy in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Like, it's not exactly what the whole thing is about. Um, like I feel very much like my, my practice in making sound and making music is about that interaction with what, what's happening in the material world and the body and the space, like the body of space and how those sounds coming out of these speakers, which like can present um, a lot of room um, for growth or limitation, dependent on what sort of system you're working with, is that that's sort of all part of it. It's not about, oh, I made a weird Max thing and here, listen to my granular patch, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, about the totality of the thing. Mm -hmm. Well, people should definitely listen to the record. I think the moments where you can start to hear shit actually wobbling is such a delight so people should go and get a buzz off of that i certainly did um i'll put links in the show notes so chloe let's go to your important albums now so before we go into the record specifically one thing i like to ask is we we're kind of discussing this actually before we we're recording but how you thought about the term important when picking your list of three records so was there a way that you understood or interpreted importance in order to come up with the list that you did yeah important is an interesting word you know it's i feel like it's really applicable and in fact I, i've even kind of been like well i i should focus on important for this reason or that reason and kind of played around with it a bunch um or like this could be a better served opportunity to like uplift more recent work like a, and a little bit of self-critique you know, um, hmm. but really when I was thinking about important and sort of the first thing that came to mind 
I, I really was thinking about um, things that have sort of stuck with me, you know, or this type of music that I learned some lessons from really early on, you know, and that's also not without its, its blind spots because most of the albums we're talking about, I really listened to as a teenager or in my very, very early 20s and kind of came about it in that way. Um, and they let me see this kind of alternative to um, making and releasing music or sound and that it doesn't actually always have to be this like trajectory of you, you write the thing, you make the perfect studio album, <laughs> you, you release it, you do all the press in the perfect way. Like I, it was more about thinking about alternatives, you know, and things that really influenced me um, as a young person. I mean, I guess I'm still a young person, but um, a younger young person, you know? Yeah, sure. And so it, it's sort of why I went with what I went with. And that was my first gut instinct was like, oh, yeah, these weird ones, like the, the demo or this thing. And it's funny, I actually generally like um, if I hear a demo of a song, which I feel like growing up, in the age of the internet um, and being a former MySpace user, I used to always hear all these demos of songs <laughs> yeah. like, as an adolescent. And then I'd hear the like very polished studio version when the band got the contract years later. And I'd always like the demo more, you know? And I think there's totally. something in that rawness. And that's one of the things that these um, works kind of taught me about in a way, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. Okay, that's great. Well, which one do you want to get stuck into first? Maybe let's talk about Les Rale's Denude. Great, cool. And that's the record called Mizuntani, right? Yeah, it's they're such a strange. Well, they were such a strange band, <laughs> no? Yeah. Um, I, I think they only really did two official releases. This, I think, is one of them. Um, I might be wrong. <laughs> it's a little confusing to track. Something I really appreciated, and of course, like, I've always had an admiration for, like, the noise, um, punk, and, um, like, emergent sort of avant-garde scene coming out of Japan. Um, but, but something I really appreciate about this record in particular is it was, I think, one of their first attempts, if I'm not wrong, at a studio album. Hmm. Uh, and then it didn't get released. It was recorded in the late 60s and it didn't get released till the 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was like uh, considered to... Um, Takashi actually considered it like a failure and like decided never to record in a studio again because of it, you know? No way. Um, yeah. And so they're just such a strange act, um, you know, and the founding, the founding member recently passed. Um, so I was thinking about it again and I just really love how all over the map it is, you know, like there's all these, really emotive like folk songs that like i i really have no clue what's being said but you can feel this thing you know mm -hmm. that music does where it like um there's like this really beautiful thing about sound where like there's abstraction can happen and 
you can feel something's in tension, even if you're not absolutely sure what it is, you know, and totally. relate to it somehow. Because we, we really depend on tonality so much, at least in the English language. Um, I know there's other languages that don't. Um, but this this example of it, and then the further work toward the end of the album involving more feedback, um, and feedback as praxis is something that's always been really um, interesting. And I guess it falls under like the doom psych um, kind of realm of music, which is really a huge thing for me growing up. Like I, I grew up in like the Vancouver, BC noise punk scene, art mm. punk. And I originally um, was shown this record and downloaded it through this like old blog spot called Totally Fuzzy. Um, <laughs> I was like all concerned, you know? Um, <laughs> with totally fuzzy sounds and i was just like eating it up <laughs> um, you know and there are other there's other release of theirs um or bootleg they're all kind of bootlegs you know like they're all weird and i love it there's this like strange documentary on vhs that like you wouldn't let the person set up more than one camera or more than one microphone at the shows it's very like it's strangely controlling but also like a form of like enabling that rawness but maybe also a tinge of self-sabotage um right. just ensuring that it, it always is underground in this way that's very interesting to me you know yeah, yeah totally i mean that ties into something i saw on their website where I, I don't know how official this website was but seemed to be this almost official resource I could find where the history of the band was relayed kind of semi-chronologically but through anecdotes from people so no centralized uh objective biography you know no immaculate thing just all of these stories which kind of aggregate this this band um I guess that kind of fits into this idea that there's you know it's all bootlegs and live stuff you just have this sort of taste this approximation from various different sources of what the thing was if you weren't there you know yeah it's all fragments and that's something i also find kind of interesting because to be totally honest like what we as artists like show of ourselves especially in a day and age that's so concerned with constant engagement and constant presence um those are all fragments you know like we're mm there's editing, there's people use filters, both like figuratively and literally, like there's always, like n no one is actually able to like show their totality, mm -hmm. um, you know? And in fact, as um, our, our interpersonal human relationships evolve, like you, you only really get to know somebody over a period of years, you know, many. I'm still finding out new things about myself and others. And there's something that's like strangely like poetic and honest about that, that it is kind of centering the mythos because that's what it is, mm -hmm. you know? And there's some more like, um, I guess more serious matter where like the, the band because a former bassist had hijacked a plane was like under a lot of CIA surveillance. And I'm sure that caused some of that sort of more protective recluse um right vibe where they they stopped playing so many shows and um the lead artist um before passing away i i think in 2019 though it wasn't mm. really announced till last year um yeah. he didn't make a public appearance since 1997.
but also they were like hugely influential to my understanding. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't grow up in Japan and I've never been there. Um, but to my understanding, they've been hugely influential on so much. And like, we're basically doing shoegaze and all this sort of feedback noise before that was even a term, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like pulling in um, references from free jazz as well as like acknowledging that. Um, that that was coming from black music. Um, I, I feel like that's so important, you know, um, mm -hmm. but I really love there was I, I can't remember or really place the quote, but I feel like I read something like years ago. Um, that was a quote from Mitsutani, um, the, the lead member, and he was talking about like um, things existing in like the night, you know, because so many of their songs have the night in them and how like the darkness or the night is actually like where things are built and destroyed and where that rawness can exist. And everything that comes out in the day is like, um, I forget the exact wording, but something like prefabricated and sort of fake, you oh, know? Wow which is really deep and then relates that to feedback you know and how this feedback praxis you know like iterating on that loop is like both building and destructive and it's like so freaking poetic yeah oh, you know that's gorgeous yeah <laughs> that's so good and it totally made me like reappreciate um their their sound you know yeah i mean to lean into that as well a bit i mean you mentioned with these records that they kind of showed you alternatives or you know that you learned lessons that you could incorporate your, yourself i mean i guess we may have even covered it but what did that look like with this record for you what were you taking away well i think with this record like i i've always been a bit nervous about recording um and and as i've said i've i've done it for other people i've mixed other people's works i've done sound design or co-produced albums um i i've even gotten to do some recordings that have been used in um like television or film as a sound designer um i'm also working on some stuff as a composer so like recording is a lot more a part of my praxis now like or what i do or practice i should say um it's it's very much something that has come about like um as what is sort of required um to, to have this as a job <laughs> you know yeah um but something that was really beautiful about how that kind of alternative got to play into the recording of this album is i did get to work with space and i did get to work with a really beautiful dmv sound system to create these um, psychoacoustics that do exist in space and work with a group of people to figure out how to capture that, mm. you know, and have that support, um, which is not, I mean, it's not a hard undertaking, but like it's a lot of moving parts. And without resources like that, we don't always get to like real, realize that sort of vision, you know, and right. I think that that's best brought to fruition with a group or community. Um, and I feel so grateful to be able to work with teams like that on occasion, you know, or have some sort of support in that process to take something beyond what um, my two hands, there's only two of them, could do, 
in the course of hours, you know? Absolutely. And to return to this record as well, this one I thought was interesting in the sense that I read a lot about the band before I actually hit play on this album. And a lot of the stories and the emphasis when people talk about the sound of this the sound of this band is the feedback like the louder edge that seems to get a lot of focus and yet for the first 20 minutes of this album it's a very subdued as you said like a very subdued kind of melancholic very beautiful sound um i'm intrigued as to why this record specifically stuck out for you i should say as well actually towards the end of the record obviously you get that other side of the spectrum coming in but is there a reason that this specific record by the band kind of protrudes for you uh, among the other stuff that they've done? Yeah, it's it's strange. Like I, I also was like, I darker than night. I should put the thing that's on or this other one. And I always kind of come back to this album. Like I, I do listen to it a bit on airplanes. Um, mm, right. There's something there's something about it. Like especially the dance. I'm gonna mispronounce this. Um, um, Dancio number one. Um, whenever mm-hmm. I kind of hear the beginning of that track, I, I just feel something in my gut, you know. Mm. And really, the first half of that album, the like really folky stuff, I don't know, always like gives me some sort of feeling, you know. And it's really effective in mm. that way. And that's really what I think I'm really interested in with music and sound and art in general is connection, you know, and I, I don't know if it's just projection, but I do really feel that with this out record and I feel it with other releases of theirs or bootlegs or whatever. Um, but there's something about this one kind of touching on most of those bases and you can kind of hear through the further recordings, which some of these songs do carry on for years and decades after, this iterative quality, you know, where they're playing different versions of the songs or different sort of iterations, and they get noisier and they get more um, chaotic, you know, Mm. and this is seemingly kind of the outset. (laughs) That's awesome. As well, I, I wanted to ask about your taste around the time that you were getting into this. So you said you were into that blog. I love you mentioned the blog spots because they were huge for me as well. These, you know, themed sites where you could just uh, rip so much stuff uh, yep. and scratch an itch completely. I mean, what other bands and records were really hitting you around this time within a similar kind of area? Well, I mean, I was really... Um... Because I, I found this sort of thing on like totallyfuzzy.blogspot.com and it was like totally the media fire account. And I was, I was a bit all over the place because, you know, like I, I, I started going to um, this, this series in Vancouver, BC called um, Fake Jazz Wednesdays um, when I was about 13 years old. And oh, wow. it, yeah, so I was in this old, what used to be like a proper punk dive bar run by people with mohawks who were like in their like 50s um called the cobalt and now has been totally gentrified and has chandeliers and stuff and it's still called the cobalt um yeah but it's like it's super bougie now um (laughs) 
And I remember when they took down all of the posters from like the decrepit bathroom, like just <laughs> decrepit areas. Um, but yeah, I started going out really young, you know, and I, I was watching people do like no input mixer feedback and all of this like kind of hardcore stuff and performance art and screaming and using vibrators on stage and just like all of this kind of ridiculous amazing stuff as like a very young adolescent and so when i get home from that like i kind of wanted to listen to more more feedback but like more something a little bit more psychedelic and i was also like really interested in like joe meek as a producer and i was watching a lot of kenneth anger films at the time which of course I, I didn't really know about like some of the iconography in that. I was interested mm. in like industrial music coming out out of the UK and um, bands like Felt that were like super also emotive, a lot of guitar noodling, kind of pre-referencing a shoegaze aesthetic, and of course some of the shoegaze overlap in that. Um, I, I was a teenager. I was into Sonic Youth, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So it was really like in that kind of scene and um, of course like Spaceman 3 and um, gosh, I'm remembering the name of this album. It's called Melomania and it's from this like precursor band to Spaceman 3 that I'm totally blanking on the name of, but like oh. things like that um, can, um, you know, I, I was just listening to things of that nature and of course Boris. Um, Hmm. Keiji Hano and just very much like these sort of maximalist, minimalist um, aesthetics of, of noise, um, but then more into some softer versions of that. Um, so yeah, I was kind of all over the place. And then I, I, I was going to the emergency room, which is this venue in Vancouver um and listening to the art punk coming out of there or what was called weird punk um and watching people do performances like um josh rose who i think played as six sick buildings at the time he was like doing this like balloon blowing up <laughs> like helium stuff with like a tape machine and it was like some of the most incredible shit i'd ever seen wow. you know um so i don't know my music taste is taste has always been like kind of all over the place i was also like clubbing a lot so i was listening to some more mainstream stuff um wow. <laughs> you know teenagers are weird you <laughs> give them a fake id they, they make some strange decisions i don't really recommend that in hindsight i'm like who is in their right mind giving me a nightlife column when i was 16. Um, <laughs> right, but right. i was very into it and it's like all the good bad and the ugly of what came of that is is very like influential to sort of how i participate today you know mm. um, mm -hmm. maybe maybe a little less messy though um, <laughs> yeah. um, Yoni, 
Chloe, let's go to your um, second important record now. So, I guess based on what we said earlier, is, is that going to be Coil backwards? Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so, give me a little introduction as to why this record made the list. Well, I think this record's kind of interesting, you know? Um, and, and the one that I really kind of am attached to the most is the original demo cassette. Um, which is from like, I think 93. So it was like three years old mm. and this was being made. Um, but there's this story behind it, which is like Trent Reznor had heard Coyle and had asked for some like help with the production of, I'm now blanking on which record Nine Inch Nails made, um, with them at this point. And then in exchange for that was like, I'm going to help you record this album at my studio. And everyone in the band at the time was working on this record, you know, the backwards record and got all upset about the gray suits. And it was like just too mainstream for them, Hmm. you know? And so it just sat in the vault, you know, never really got addressed. Um, But then it's like been re-released. So like fragments or remixes of this have been kind of reconstructed and changed and re-released over the years um, as two different albums, you know, and one, some of which have also ended up in remixes of Nine Inch Nails stuff. Hmm. But the song Heaven's Blade is like, so on this demo, it's so like kind of simple, you know, it's like this looping violin or string sound um, with electronics over it. And it's just so freaking effective. You know, I just really love that, um, that sound, you know, and it kind of goes back to this, this thing of like, I, I really appreciate demos and that kind of rawness, you know, and Coil, like, um, of course there's, they, they also have a history, but like part of that is like Throbbing Gristle, which is hugely influential on industrial music in general and like i mean i guess i don't exactly make industrial music um but i'm definitely referencing that and noise and electronics in my work and have of course played noise shows and done done strange weird things with music you know and (laughs) there's so much of that culture kind of embedded in in what i do for better and worse um Hmm. But yeah, it's it's linked. Like, um, you think about the connections had through that band to like Robin Gristle and Psychic TV, and then Drew McDowell coming in later, and the connections to like Felt and Strawberry Switchblade, and all of these different, very different genres, you know, but very mm. much related in like their weirdness and that kind of escapism in a way. Um, and trying to find a new way to express or expel something that's like always been um that kind of experiential performance element has always been kind of relevant in my own practice that Mm. makes any sense absolutely yeah and i'm intrigued as well as to how you first came into coral you make reference to this whole crop of bands as well so you know i guess there's any number of routes you could have come to to get to them but yeah do you remember how you first discovered i was born in 1990 Mm -hmm. and i i started 
kind of perusing music forums and stuff at the library. Like I spent a lot of time at the Vancouver Public Library as a kid. They had computers. Um, and I've always been kind of interested in like research, although I don't actually know all that much, you know, <laughs> no, who has the time to know everything. Um, and so I was always on these like weird forums, um, as a kid, you know, um, spending time in the library. And then I eventually got my own computer and started finding more music through that. And I feel like I, I stumbled across quail like on some strange forum, but it was also stuff that was just kind of regularly being listened to around me. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I spent time like hanging out with this, this band and Jesse Taylor, member of um, Twin Crystals um, and some practice spaces where like sharing pinks and all these other weird bands were, were around, you know, and some people would just put music on and we talk about it and I learned so much. You know, just I, I was like I, I left home when I was fifteen, and so I was really young. But I was always around people who were a very passionate about music and weird avant-garde noise strangeness. You know, um, and then B, they were like really willing to share their knowledge. You know, mm. I a part of this artist project which actually still exists in a different iteration um, called Redgate in Vancouver um, at its original space and we were trying to get this building up to fire code together I was like also kind of squatting on the second floor um, <laughs> with this like weird art studio um, and the the guy who started it um, Jim who still runs it he had this amazing record collection and I alphabetized and organized the whole thing. And like, that's how I like first heard Bush Tetras, you know, and like different sort of punk or weird stuff. Cause he had like every album, Wow. you know, and I, I was just organizing and kind of inventorying everything and listening to all of this strange music. And I was also like 16, you know, <laughs> living off of grilled cheese sandwiches <laughs> um, you know it was it was a strange time to return to to coil i think what's really interesting with this backwards record is uh, the track that you kind of highlighted is you know the, the demo version of heaven's blade right so if i'm right the version that actually appears on backwards itself isn't that version but backwards seems to be this um, it seems to have tendrils going in a lot of different directions, right? So you've got tracks here that also feature on Ape of Naples in a different form or, you know, other records that maybe were being produced around a similar era that they, I'm guessing, repurposed for other records. And so it's this, I guess, this amalgam of loads of different stuff. Um I mean, what about backwards as a, a record itself? I mean, is this one that you listen to much from start to finish? Is it the record itself or is it more the kind of circumstances around the material that appeal to you? I think it might be a bit of both depending on the day, you know, like I, <laughs> right, yeah. I, I feel like I haven't listened. I listened to it front to back, at least the demo version. Well, I listened to both because I was like, do I really want to choose this one? <laughs> do I want to do this one? Is that real? Um, 
and it, it was like okay there's definitely because i remember listening to backwards when it came out in 2015 and ape of naples prior to that and my friend showed me the original kind of cassette tape demo that i i'm that's the one that i really sort of felt something drawing me toward um before i'd heard those other two you know mm. um and i i found it like kind of early on and then another friend of mine brought it up again a few years ago like it must have been 2017 or something i guess six years ago or five years ago now <laughs> um time is not linear um and was like this version of heaven's blade is the best and i was like you know what you're right you're so <laughs> right and whenever i'm on long drives i just like put it on um it's been i i, I it feels sort of shameful to say but i i don't spend a ton of time listening to music anymore just because with work um sometimes i need an ear break you know right, and if I'm cool working, yeah, if I'm working on a bunch of um, sounds, like right now I'm working on a, a VR project and this album release set and doing some touring coming up this year and doing sound design for a dance show and doing sound design for other stuff, um, I'm kind of like constantly listening to sound and thinking mm. about sound. And sometimes I'm just like, you know, I just like the cityscape. I just like the sounds of the city. and. Um, I, and my ears need a break already, you know? Yeah, um, 100%. So it, it's sort of, it's always been one that I, like that track in particular is always one that I go back to. And I've listened to the album through like a bunch of times. And it, it's just such a weird variety, kind of actually like the, the first album we were talking about, you know, <laughs> it's like a strange story arc. And there's something that's like, um, not to use the word again, but it's sort of raw or incomplete about it. And it, it does, like you say, have these tendrils in all these different directions. And it, it's not um, exactly like decided upon. Yes. And I kind of appreciate that, you know, like yeah. it, it's messy. Um, maybe I just like messy things. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really like the fact that with this one sort of you know backwards the one released in 2015 is sort of generated with i guess the original intention in mind but like after the fact like there's not the thing right there's these approximate approximations of the thing it reminds me of like um captain beefheart's bat chain puller where You've mm -hmm. kind of got a record that came out that wasn't that record and then one that was, but way after the fact. So there's this sense that the central thing is lost and you just got these artifacts of near misses, which is really exciting. I think, I guess it comes back to the thing you were saying about kind of the fragmentary nature of everything. Perhaps it just cuts right through to that. You know what I mean? But um, there's something that gives me a buzz about it with this, this coil record. Yeah, it's so strange too, because like you, you can hear all those differences, and like they are fragments, you know, and that everything's kind of an artifact in this way. And I, yeah, it's like I, I guess maybe I just use the word like raw and messy, but like really, I think I just appreciate the honesty in that, like yeah. in nature, you know, an iterative process of it being something that these tracks have been featured and altered and 
points of them have referenced all these different releases um, and kind of decentralized them and then in sort of piecing that back together um, for the latest release of it, there's, there's something about that, like, was this ever meant to be centralized? That right, kind of question. Because it didn't work out the first time, clearly. <laughs> um, but it, then it kind of worked out the second time, and now it's like we're on the third round. Um, and I, I really just appreciate that kind of honesty to the complication of like artistic practice. You know, like mm-hmm. not to just drone on about myself, but like I. I've been working on this VR project and I found all these folders of sounds that I've worked on while working on those compositions, like over the past like year or so. And I was like, I made this? <laughs> and it's just like some random file, like totally mislabeled on a hard drive that's like in a subfolder. And I'm like, I totally forgot that I made this weird thing. <laughs> and I hated it. And it's actually kind of rad. So cool, you know, and kind of in this like time where a lot of these artists um, who were working on these um, kind of strange processes are are aging or have passed. I'm sure there's like what we're kind of left with is that those fragments. Chloe, let's go to your final important album now. So, yeah, what have we got? Got Phil Block, and now, and it's, it's from the album that's released as music. Correct. <laughs> I'm like, blinking <laughs> on what I included. <laughs> I know it's Phil Block. I know. What is it, though? <laughs> Um, I'm like, I'm just remembering the track Early Winter. That's not the name of the album. I think I wrote that in the original email and you were confused by me. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it is the length of an entire album. That track's Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, give me a little intro as to why this one made the list. Well, it's interesting because like, I, I didn't know a whole ton about Phil Kneeblock um, and... You know, there's an other amazing artists working like in very similar medium, um, such as Marianne Amache, hmm. who have recently also kind of been more publicized and Phil's been working um, with like the, just the various foundations he has and performance. Like he just had his like, I think it was 88th or 80th birthday party and like did like 24, 48 hours of remote performances with different people. Um, I've always been really engaged in like the community aspect of things. Um, but something that's kind of stuck with me is he did this tape op interview. Um, and I forget what year he did it, but it was just probably 20 years ago. Um, and he talks about this release 
and how he's kind of against recording huh. because his music's meant to be played really loud in spaces and you don't really get, you don't have that control hmm. over how people are going to listen to something, you know? And I really related to that. Um, and that's kind of something that I, I think we discussed a bit, even with like the production of this record and kind of the, the team or the time and the space needed to actually kind of give that experience of being in it, which I'm glad translated for you. Um, hmm. it's, it's a hard thing to achieve. And like when you don't have control over if somebody's going to listen to it on their iPhone in a mug or with a subwoofer, it's, it's kind of hard to estimate for that stuff. Yeah. Um, when you're making site-specific installation or site-specific performance work. And I, I can see why he was of this opinion, mm -hmm. you know, which is not to, I feel like with good engineering and consideration, you can, you can bypass some of that. But truthfully, if you listen to the last track on my album with a, without a subwoofer, you're not really hearing anything. Right. Exactly. You know, it's just not, it's not there. There's not a lot there. And with Phil's work, I, I've mainly played it on like venue PAs. Um, I have a really nice speaker set up at, at my house too. And so I've played it on that and you really don't get the depth of what's going on with like the overlapping um, frequencies until you have it at a specific volume and you start moving around. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's pretty overwhelming and I really appreciate how in the works you really notice more of what's going on when he starts to take some of those tracks away you know and through like disappearance you become aware of the content yes absolutely you know it's really beautiful in that way and um it's like that kind of minimal maximal thing again where it's like 32 different drones and then I'm taking them away a bit. And you're like, <laughs> this could be the most boring thing I've ever experienced, but it's not. It's emotive as fuck. I'm, am I allowed to swear? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I just popped out. <laughs> I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, and there's something just like really beautiful about those translations. You know, I really appreciate that work. Um, of course, mm. there's a ton of artists that don't release music and make strange things and they, they only perform. Um, but I just, I feel like he sort of talked about this stuff so succinctly. Um, and I, I relate to that, you mm. know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it was that interview that you're referring to, but I just remember this, this quote, or maybe I don't, I don't, this may not be exact quote, but I swear he said something along the lines of like, that's not the music. If you're not listening to it at a specific volume, it's just not the the music, which is like, I, I, it sounds like a real uh, attempt to, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but a certain control, I guess, over the recorded domain, right? I'm saying, well, okay, I can't control where you listen to my music, but just know that if you're doing it outside of these parameters, it's not the thing. <laughs> um, exactly. Which is really, really interesting, but I, I, totally get it i mean um have you seen his so so you you've you've listened to his stuff over pas you say have you seen his stuff live i actually haven't i was gonna go there was a solstice show 
Um, I think it was the day that uh, the day I arrived to New York in 2020, uh, winter solstice, and I was tired and I didn't <laughs> know. And now I'm like, darn. <laughs> <laughs> So like I've seen some live streams and I've listened to recorded material, but I haven't actually seen him perform, you know, so I've done it wrong. I've tried to do it right. Um, you know, like I've really tried, um, I've attempted, but like, I, I don't actually know the thing. And maybe that's what makes it interesting to me. You know, he's like, I, I know the mythos. I relate to the mythos and I'm totally doing it wrong. <laughs> I'm that ass, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a really interesting r running theme though right with this with all three records where it's like um you kind of end up going around the perimeter of these things it's so easy to do that rather than kind of staring right at the the thing it's interesting it's the case with phil as well yeah but i'm also i, I kind of like that and i i mean i think the music to some extent like speaks for itself yeah totally. you know and we can we can all talk speak very academically about specific notes or frequencies that are happening in these compositions but i, I feel like those are best heard you mm -hmm. know and um we can do our best to listen you know with the yeah. disclaimer that has to be loud yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know. do you remember how you got into phil's music well with phil's music someone showed it to me i'm forgetting who Someone showed it to me and then it came up again. Like I remembered it um, when I was running a project space in Portland, Oregon. And I was doing a, a night of, I was hosting a night of performances. And this was like in 2015, I think. And I wanted something that was going to be really good to just sort of play as people were coming in that would set a mood. And then I was like, oh yeah, I've got like a proper PA system. Let's just blast this. Oh. Bill Kneeblock, intro music, thank you. Oh, amazing. And it just kind of set people at ease, you know, <laughs> in this way that prepared them for these like very strange performances. Um, I shouldn't say strange, it was experimental. And <laughs> I, I was, and everyone was like, what is this? This is fantastic. And I was like, it's that guy from the East Coast, <laughs> <laughs> Bill Kneeblock. <laughs> never like I might be totally oblivious and he's totally played Vancouver Portland and probably am you know um mm. but why I got interested in it and what kind of stuck with me is it actually reminded me of the show and I am so blanking I actually for this interview messaged someone who was a part of the emergency room which is that venue I was talking about um in Vancouver and then they hosted, um, before they had a, a proper kind of space, um, they hosted shows in this open parking garage um, of the Emily Carr University. So they were mostly Emily Carr kids um, or students or former students. And I went to this drone show there and it was my first experience with a dream machine. Right. And so someone had made a dream machine with like the old 78 record player proper style and there was this sound happening and i can't for the life of me remember the artist who was playing and i also <clears throat> asked like keith 
Keith Wecker, who's an amazing, like brilliant saxophonist um, and experimental musician. I was like, Keith, who was that person? He's like, oh, I remember Brad. Brad A did the visuals. You can find his Instagram here. I really can't tell you until I find the show flyer and I'll dig through and find it. And then he couldn't find it. Oh, man. Yeah. So I was like, because I wanted to include that record, you know? Um, and I was like, okay, I guess Phil's like the substitute for that thing. <laughs> like, it's kind of the closest sort of relevant experience. And he's spoken out about this thing. And it makes sense. Um, so it was really like, it kind of reminded me of like my first true drone show. Wow, you know, so in this cool. like parking garage. <laughs> <laughs> it's like super resonant, huge parking garage. Um, on a slope, everything was like tilted. Oh wow! Um, it was really beautiful, and yeah, that was those. It must have been like two thousand four, two thousand five. You know, or two thousand five, two thousand six. Wow. So you were like yeah. 15, 15, 16 yeah. again. Yeah. So it was all kind of this formative times. And I feel like I heard Phil Kneeblock after that. And they they all kind of like, it re-cemented in this way, kind of. And of course, these people reference each other and like going to Dreamhouse and experiencing Lamont Young's work. These things are all on these trajectories you know, that are intertwined, even if they're not inherently associated, just like with that first record, like the relationship between like the feedback and kind of noisier aspects of um, Raleigh's um, later releases is inherently tethered to like Velvet Underground and Free Jazz, yes. you know, and so there's these connective tissues that all of these artists, despite having like very cross genre um and discrete practices that are their own that they like embody um are we're all referencing each other you know and we're all effectively referencing things that have happened before us even if that's um turning away from them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know like we're all in relation and i think there's something really beautiful about that so that was your you, you mentioned that first drone experience you had when you were you know 15 16 where did you go after that point? I mean, were there other artists beyond Phil Niblock that really excited you within drones? I mean, I feel like I've heard so much stuff and I've worked with people and played shows with people doing drone, like um, in the, I guess maybe it's, it's always been, I've always been like a live music fanatic mm. and uh, I have records and collect albums, but then I, anytime people ask me questions like this, I'm like, my mind is drawing a blank. I'm just <laughs> thinking of my friend Cole Galbraith, and when we like made that record with rocks, <laughs> I'm like, feedback, uh, what am I supposed to talk about now? But I feel like, I don't know. Um, there's, there's some really beautiful works. Like, I, I don't know that I've listened to a ton of like just straight, drone but i feel like i've listened to so many artists doing things that are drone like or referencing drone mm -hmm. uh, you know like just even thinking about the work of robert ike aubrey lowe and his work with drones um mm. but not necessarily being a drone musician um and, and so I, I always have a hard time with like categorizing in this way you know what i feel like so many people in that 
modular community like some of drew mcdowell's work could kind of fall under that category but like don't i don't really think that's that's true and like marcus fisher and his work with tape loops and ambient yes kind of yeah. like presents in that way but like I, I wouldn't say it's drone you know thinking about that sort of thing i don't know i just i'm really glad that people make stuff you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, even if I'm not always the best at referencing it, I should just make a list before these types of things and be more prepared. <laughs> I mean, another thing actually with Phil that I did want to bring up, which I find really exciting is that this may have been the Tone Glow interview that he did, where he said that he decided what he was going to do musically over the course of a few minutes in 1968 and hasn't changed his conception since. And that was at age like 35 for him. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that lucidity to me is just absolutely fascinating because it's nothing I recognize in myself, right? But I'm intrigued as to how you relate to that. This idea that, you know, feels like, right, I've, I've got it. I've sketched it down. This is what I'm going to do. And that's it now for you know, four decades, four or five decades, however long he's been doing it. Like, is that something you can relate to at all? Like having a, a, a core sense of what you're doing or not? I mean, I guess in some ways, like fundamentally, like if we strip it down to like, uh, say like a tuning system, then yeah, I relate to that. Hmm. You know, like um, the idea of a tuning system, like where you, you have a structure um, and you, you've decided things are notes and they occur at specific frequencies and that's sort of a roadmap. Yeah. Then like totally I relate. Um, if we're talking about actual like performance practice or writing or composition, it's always going to be this way. Um, I have no idea. And even that tuning system is open to reinterpretation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like I can be a rather stubborn person and I think that's sort of necessary. Hmm. um in in making work you know and especially like um growing up the way that i did you kind of got to be persistent hmm. and so that rigidity i i guess to some extent i relate to but i also um i feel like i'm constantly learning so much about the world and I very much am a person that interprets my experiences, my conversations, um, what, what's going on in my past and present lives, you know, um, as, as raw material, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't really think that I, I will ever kind of have it figured out. And in fact, the making, the thing that's consistent is like, um, I really hope to make a work that is um beyond me you know mm -hmm. um like I, I build all these instruments and I, I build all these structures like through programming or installation style or different sort of restrictions or variations of spaces um but when i'm actually playing i use timers and i generally have like a written score but like i don't i don't really stick to it you know like i set right. up these like, very rigid these things will occur in these times and these notes, but then once I'm actually there, like it often changes and that changes because of people, 
not to like make my audience happy, but like you can feel there's reciprocity in sharing work with people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can feel that energy when you're performing, when you're making things collaboratively with space, with people, like you feel the feedback and that means I might rest with something longer than I'd planned. That means that I might move to a different direction than I planned. Um, and, and so I really just, I, I don't ever really want to think I've got it figured out, you know? Right, of course. Because I don't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I might know some things about some stuff, um, you know, and like odd and even harmonics, but like I, I, I really, I'm interested in like the sort of flexibility. I feel like that's an awesome place to wrap up. I mean, thank you so much for speaking about your record and these three records, which I had a lot of fun with. This was a really nice eclectic mix. So, yes, thank you. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this and for listening. And I'm glad you got something out of it. Awesome. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.